verses of that chapter. And if you're using one of our pew Bibles, it's page 1009. Mark chapter 7. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honour your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, Envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Thanks, Carl. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, we uh, pray that you would uh, reveal to us who we are uh, and who Jesus is, that you would show to us uh, that we are great sinners but that Jesus Christ is a great saviour. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, Has anyone here heard of Ignaz Semmelweis? I'm guessing there might be some. Yeah? Really, that's it? Ah, disappointing. I might have better luck this afternoon. Uh, Well, if... (laughs) Obviously, this is the poorer of the two congregations. Uh, And... uh, but uh, no, it's just there's more doctors this afternoon, I'm guessing. But uh, uh, Ignaz Semmelweis, if you've never heard the story, you're really missing out. Uh, he's, he's one of the most significant 
uh, doctors in history, uh, he discovered in 1846, this is 1846, mind you, this is not that long ago, okay, 1846, he discovered one of the most significant things in medicine, that is the importance of washing your hands. Uh, That's extraordinary, isn't it? 1846, no one knew before that that it was important to wash your hands. Uh, So at the time of uh, Ignat Semmelweis, uh, women were dying in his maternity ward uh, that he was working. They were just dying with disturbing regularity uh, from a fever. The mortality rate for women who gave birth in the hospital was as high as 25 to 30%. After some trial and error, Semmelweis realised that what was causing the deaths was that doctors were going straight from conducting autopsies to delivering babies. Uh, He realised somehow, he didn't know how, uh, he realised that somehow doctors were passing on the disease to patients and so he ordered doctors to wash their hands uh, and the instruments as well in chlorine and the result was a dramatic drop in the number of deaths in in that maternity ward. From... uh, from 25 to 30% to, in a couple of months, no deaths at all. Uh, regrettably, <laughs> despite the obvious results, other people wouldn't listen uh, about the benefits of hand washing and he lost his job. He was a difficult man to work with under, uh, by some reports. Uh, and although he was able to enact those reforms in other places, a few other places, the general response was very negative. Uh, and he ended up himself dying insane in a mental uh, institute, probably from the same kind of fever that killed all those women. Uh, it's hard to believe, isn't it, uh, only uh, not even 200 years ago, that people wouldn't accept the importance of handwashing. I mean, it seems so perversely obvious to us. Now handwashing is literally everywhere. Uh, I've got a few photos this morning. I've just sort of, you know, branch out a bit. So this is one of my favourite photos... Um, this, is, this is Madonna uh, leaving an orphanage in Malawi with the hand sanitizer still in her hand as she's waving to the, uh, to the children. Uh, as one reporter said, nothing says you and I are the same as, uh, uh, as waving with the, uh, the, the hand sanitizer out the window. Uh, it, was, it appeared in the Sydney Morning Herald under the imaginative title, Madonna Wipes Hands of the Poor. Uh, this is, the next one's a picture of Robbie Williams. I don't know if you saw this. This is at the beginning of the year. Uh, so you can watch the footage of him high-fiving and meeting and greeting all the fans. He gets onto stage, uh, and this is the expression, uh, and that's the hand sanitizer. Uh, and that was published in lots of newspapers, uh, but it was published in The Guardian under the title, Ugh, uh, Why Hand Sanitizer is a Must When Celebrities Meet the Great Unwashed. Well, hand sanitizer is everywhere, isn't it? Uh, if you go into the hospital, sometimes I think I'm the only one at the lift using it. Uh, but the signs say that you're supposed to, so I do. Uh, uh, hand, hand washing is everywhere, uh, and in Mark 7, Jesus encounters his own unexpected hand washing controversy. Uh, Jesus shows, though, in this passage, that although hand washing is important uh, in medicine, hand washing uh, is, has its limitations as well and can't cure all the uh, problems and all the issues that we have uh, as human beings. 
The issue in this passage arises when some of the religious leaders of Jesus' day see his disciples eating food without washing their hands. Uh, When the religious leaders see that, they're deeply concerned. It's not... Uh, that there are a few uh, thousand years ahead of uh, Arthur Ignatz Semmelweis, but it's rather that they're worried uh, about uh, a religious matter. It's not a health concern, it's a religious concern. Mark, who's writing this biography of Jesus, explains that the issue is not cleanliness, but ritual defilement. So he says in verse 3, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the tradition of the elders. Uh, When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash and they observe many other traditions such as the washing of cups, pitchers and kettles. So in many homes, apparently, there'd be these big stone water jars there. Uh, You come across them in John chapter 2. People would come in the door from the marketplace and they'd be able to wash, they'd be able to clean themselves, not because they were worried about hygiene, but because they were worried about uh, ritual defilement. Uh, It's not just their hands as well and themselves that they want to clean, but it's pots and pans as well. They don't want them to be cleaner, they said, for hygienic reasons. It's a ceremonial thing. It's a ceremonial washing. It's a religious uh, thing. So there are a number of uh, washing rituals uh, in the Old Testament that God had given the people. But most of those rituals, most of those ceremonies were limited either to priests entering the temple. So the temple, uh, as a priest entered the temple, they'd often have to wash their hands. Uh, or those rituals were restricted to washing after coming into contact with something uh, such as a dead body uh, or some kind of bodily discharge. Uh, it seems prescient, actually, doesn't it? It seems kind of quite sensible in the light of uh, Ignaz Semmelweis uh, to to engage in that kind of practice. God gave people instructions about those things. He gave them instructions about limiting what kinds of foods they ate. Uh, So some food was considered clean and they could eat those and some food was considered unclean and they couldn't eat that. Now that might seem all very strange to us, but the significance of all those regulations about cleanness and cleansing uh, was that they were intended to illustrate something about the nature of life, about... Uh, the nature of sin. Uh, It was really a lived-out illustration that sin is like a contagion. Uh, It's that sin is like a disease that spreads through the world and that sin needs to be avoided. But although there was uh, an Old Testament background to this kind of thing, it seems that by the time it got to uh, Jesus' day, the religious leaders had taken it to kind of the next level. There were those Old Testament ceremonies and rituals, but these guys had applied the ritual washings to a whole range of new things that God had never applied it to. And so when they see Jesus' disciples not washing their hands, they ask Jesus, what's going on? That was never in the Old Testament, but they want to know what's going on. So verse 5, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders uh, instead of eating their food with defiled hands? To which Jesus replies, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus doesn't even answer their questions. And he's he's pretty blunt, isn't he? He says, Isaiah was right about you hypocrites. Jesus points out that they have entirely missed the point. 
They were obsessed with dirt when the real problem was their sin. And Jesus highlights two specific problems. The first problem is the hypocrisy of their actions. So they say one thing and they do another. The problem with hypocrisy is, isn't it, that it looks so good on the outside. It looks so studious uh, on the outside, but inside it can be really, really empty. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, any of those, you know, the extras that you get on DVDs or if you've watched a documentary on TV where they give you the behind the scenes and they show you some of the outtakes or they show you just some of the process uh, that they go through in making a film. Uh, and it's, it's actually really disturbing, isn't it? I don't know. Uh, you watch these scenes that you've seen in the film uh, and they just seem really ordered. It's like someone standing in their kitchen, uh, you know, <laughs> just, you know, recording a, a scene with their friend. It's really ordinary. Uh, you don't have any of the glamour of post-production. Uh, you don't have any of the sound effects. You don't, have the, you don't have the soundtrack going on in the background. In fact, often there's this kind of... There's often, like, banging and clattering going on. You think, how do they get rid of that when they, when, when they get to the final cut? Uh, it's worse if they're, if they're in front of a green screen. Uh, I, I remember watching one behind-the-scenes thing, and it was just it was someone... It was literally someone in a harness jumping onto a cushion. And I just thought... <laughs> and then they show you the final thing and they're jumping through fire and whatever it is. You think, wow, talk about robbing the magic of film. Uh, it, it really looks like someone's just standing on this soundstage or in their kitchen rather than somebody inhabiting this kind of ethereal world. Isn't it? So we see the finished product, we see the glamorous finished product, this, this beautiful world that we imagine uh, and that we almost enter into, uh, and yet behind that actually is something really quite ordinary, something really quite empty. Uh, sometimes our lives are like a film. They're, they're kind of this glossy post-production version on the outside, but inside... Uh, they're this raw, uncut thing. Uh, they're, they're not at all glamorous. They're empty. Uh, and sometimes they're actually filthy uh, and riddled with, with all this kind of moral filth. So we might fully agree that we ought to love our neighbour. Yeah, we go, yes, absolutely love our neighbour. Uh, but inside, uh, we're just full of bitterness towards them. We might even be really nice to them. So when they say hello to us, we say hello. And we, go, and we think to ourselves, aren't I wonderful? I'm so kind to my neighbour. But actually inside we're full of kind of anger about the fact that they won't trim the hedge uh, and they won't cut down the tree that's cutting out the light coming into the kitchen. Uh, we might fully agree that we ought to honour our politicians as people put in authority by God. Uh, and we say, absolutely, I thank God for the politicians that he's given us. But actually, most days, we just complain about them, don't we? Uh, we question their integrity. Oh, I know why he's doing that. He's doing that just to get something for himself. We ascribe the worst motivations to them and, and we say that they have no interest uh, in doing any good for the country. They're just in it for themselves. Uh, or we might always be at church early. We might always sing loudly, but actually our hearts are never in it. Uh, so we're just kind of mindlessly repeating the songs. Uh, we're far from the enjoyment and the worship of God. People look at us, uh, belting out the song, and they think to themselves, how holy uh, are they? But actually it's just kind of this, this, this facade. 
To some degree, I think we're all guilty of hypocrisy, but the kind of hypocrisy that Jesus has in mind is actually even worse than that kind of hypocrisy, what you might call run-of-the-mill hypocrisy. I mean, no hypocrisy is run-of-the-mill, but there's, there's a kind to Jesus that's worse than others. You see, the worst kind of hypocrisy is the, is the hypocrisy of those people who say that they love God but don't. According to the quote from Isaiah, the problem is that people honour God with their lips, but not with their hearts. So their hearts just aren't in it. They say, I love God, I'm totally following God, I am behind God 100%, uh, but actually, they're not at all. In our context, we might say, I'm, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus, but actually, our lives don't bear that out. Uh, as James, the writer of one of the letters of the New Testament says, you might... Uh, have faith, but if your actions aren't following that out, then, then that's just emptiness, isn't it? It's, just, it's, not, it's not faith at all. No, faith manifests itself in the way that we live. Uh, listen to these words from, from 1 John. If we claim to have fellowship with him, with God, with Jesus, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. If we say one thing and don't live it out, it's, it's a lie. There are lots of people going around today who will put up their hand and say, I am a Christian, but whose lives don't back that up. People who say, I'm a Christian, but whose lives have never changed. Uh, they've, you know, they were converted 20 years ago and they're still living the same life that they, that they were before they were converted 20 years ago. It has, their lives haven't changed at all. They're still sinking themselves into the same stuff that God hates. Or people who say, I'm a Christian, but whose lives are entirely centred on themselves. They've never made a single decision in their whole life which was done at their cost and for the glory and honour of God. Or people who say, I'm a Christian, but, but never turn up to church. They say, I'm part of the body of Christ. But actually that never has any reality from week to week. You can't be joined to Jesus and not be infected by the love that Jesus has for his own body, for his own people, the people that he's died for. Or people who say, I'm a Christian and turn up to church religiously week after week, but for whom God has no significance in the rest of their lives. God has an hour of their week and that's it. You cannot meet Jesus and stay the same people, the same person that you always were. It just, just doesn't, it can't happen. <laughs> because meeting Jesus just transforms your life. That doesn't mean that you become perfect. You might be a genuine Christian and look at your life and say, man, there's so much hypocrisy in me. Yeah, I do look at my neighbour and think, I wish they'd cut down that tree, and I am angry about it. There is hypocrisy, but actually... There is genuine change as well. The difference between true faith, which takes us to heaven, and hypocrisy, which takes us to hell, is that true faith is honest with God. Hypocrisy hides before God. True faith is open and honest about our faults. True faith longs to be delivered from hypocrisy rather than being content to stay in it. True faith, or penitent faith, it's an old word, but it's a great expression. Penitent faith, humble faith, repentant faith... True faith means that when you see hypocrisy in your life, you throw it down at the foot of the cross. You say, I don't want to have anything to do with that. I don't want to be that person anymore. I know, I know that's who I am, but I don't want to be that. 
True faith means that when you see self-centeredness or when you see ongoing sin or when you see lovelessness or when you, you see other things like that in your life, you're open with God about it. You say, God, you know who I am. You know this isn't right. I know that it's not right. You live at the foot of the cross and, and you're asking God to forgive you and to change you. When you see sin, you're not content to let it go on. You're not content to see God to be you're not content to see God being dishonored in your life. Hypocrisy is about an empty heart and then kind of nice, glossy, beautiful words over the top which kind of mask that and hide that. True faith and trust in Jesus is about a broken and a contrite heart and broken and contrite words which reveal uh, and expose to God and to others uh, that broken and contrite heart. Jesus says about these religious leaders, and maybe he's saying it about you as well, these people honour me with their lips, but actually their hearts are far from me. So that's the first problem that Jesus identifies uh, it's the hypocrisy of these religious leaders. But that leads then to the second problem that he identifies, which is actually focused on the particular example of their hypocrisy uh, and how that's being kind of shown, how it's being manifested. So the problem that Jesus highlights is that they're replacing God's commands with their own commands. Jesus says in verse 8, uh, here's the problem, you've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Well, how are they doing that? Jesus gives an example, verse 10. For Moses said, honour your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. Well, that's pretty, pretty strong, isn't it? But, uh, but you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother, thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like that. So this is not the only thing. Uh, but this is one of them. So Jesus takes this one example of how the religious leaders are overturning God's commands or overshadowing God's commands with their own commands. Jesus says that God's command is to uh, that people honour their, their father and mother, their parents, uh, and part of the package deal of that is giving financial support. Uh, so in those days, you know, when you retired, uh, if you retired... <laughs> Uh, there was no superannuation, there was no government pension. Uh, so if, if you were old and you could no longer work, you needed someone to look after you. Well, how do you, you honour your father and mother in that context? You provide for them, don't you? Uh, you, you provide for them uh, and support them financially and, with, and uh, in other practical ways. But the religious leaders have come up with a way in Jesus' day to kind of get around God's command and still look really holy. Uh, so, uh, so that they didn't need to give their possessions to their parents, they, uh, they decided that they could devote those things to God. Uh, in the language of the day, they would say, it was Corban. It's an odd word for us, isn't it? But it basically meant it's devoted to God. So they've, they've got something to say, it's devoted to God, and that means I can't use it anymore to support anyone else. I can't use that, can't give it away to someone, uh, I can't help anyone with it. The trick was that the person who had dedicated that thing to God didn't actually have to give it away. Uh, so they got to hang on to it until they died, and then it will go to the temple. So, you know, you might... Um, 
you might uh, dedicate your lounge uh, to, to God, but you still get to keep, to keep the lounge. Uh, and you, well, I'm sorry, I can't share that with you. It's dedicated to God, but it's still yours. Uh, so you might, have, uh, you might have a second donkey in the garage uh, that nobody ever rides, uh, and your parents can't afford the, the rego for their own donkey. Um, it's, it's getting pretty costly. Uh, and, and, and so they say, look, can we borrow your donkey? And it's like, no, I'm sorry. I've dedicated uh, our second donkey to God. You, you, there's no, uh, you, you can't take it. You have to find your own way. At one level, it looks so good, doesn't it? Um, you know, I can't help you because, I've, because I'm so committed to God. You can just imagine you can just imagine yourself saying it, actually, can't you? Uh, I, sorry, I can't help you. I'm so committed to God, I can't help you in that way. But Jesus says, uh, Jesus shows it for what it is. That is, it's rank hypocrisy. These people aren't serving God, they're serving themselves. And they're just making up rules to avoid serving God. But what's so deceptive about it is that it kind of has this appearance of diligence. They become legalistic in order to avoid doing what God wants. That is, they become, in a way, they they kind of become more concerned with what God wants in order to avoid doing what God wants. So we think of legalism uh, in the opposite way. We think of legalism as people who are really pernickety because they think they'll be saved by what they do. Uh, They're really punctilious in serving God, all that kind of thing. But actually Jesus points out that legalism can also kind of work in another way. That is, that we come up with all kinds of rules to actually get around doing the heart of what God is really on about. We come up with things that are kind of maybe easier to do, things that suit us, which have the appearance of godliness, but actually avoid the heart of the matter. And the sobering truth, I think, at play here in this passage is that these people probably thought that they were really honouring God. It's actually the most disturbing part about it. I suspect that these people were not there thinking to themselves, well, I've got a cunning plan for how I can be greedy. But they were probably thinking to themselves, actually, I'm doing the right thing. I'm really honouring God here. They seem to have been greatly troubled when Jesus' disciples didn't wash their hands before they ate. They couldn't understand it. What's going on? I This matters, doesn't it? Jesus says, no, it doesn't. They're so focused on the small issues that they completely miss the rank hypocrisy of their lives more broadly. Jesus says elsewhere, it's like straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. That is, you spend so much time looking for this tiny speck, uh, you know, in in your coffee cup that you miss the fact that there's a giant camel sitting at the bottom of it that that you're only too ready to swallow. We think of hypocrisy as fundamentally a form of lie. That is, we, we say we hold to an idea when we don't really. But Jesus points out that hypocrisy can be grounded in distraction and misdirection. We're so focused on one thing that we miss something bigger. So we might treat the people at church or at work with love and generosity but then we treat our own children or wives or parents with utter contempt. And we pride ourselves on the way that we love those in our workplaces and love those in our church, but actually staring us in the face is our rank hypocrisy, the way that we treat those 
closest to us. Uh, Or again, it often happens to people when they fight to uphold a moral or a theological truth. They end up uh, focusing so much on the issue at stake that they completely miss the fact that love and mercy and compassion and generosity of spirit have all gone out the window. They're fighting for theological truths, and maybe that's right, but they've missed the fact that they're not doing it in the way that God admires. They're actually dishonouring God in the way that they uh, do that. But again, the key issue here is not those kind of second-level kinds of hypocrisy. The key issue here uh, is that these religious leaders had missed the gospel. They looked at their hand-washing and they thought that they knew God, but they didn't. The key danger for us as well, I think, is that we do the same thing, that we look to other kind of lesser marks of our trust in God and kind of hold those up as evidence that we know God when we don't really know God at all. So instead of a broken and contrite heart and hope in Jesus as being the key test of whether we really know God, we look to our our diligence in attending Christian activities. Uh, We look to our diligence in daily Bible reading. We look at our regular contributions to the church or mission agencies. We we look at our budget and we go, 10% off to the church, fantastic, I'm a Christian. Or or we might even look at our sponsorship of a a compassion child and go, "Look, look at my generosity. And while all those things might be good things, they don't tell us whether we know God in Jesus. I was reading a book yesterday uh, in which I was reminded that Charles Wesley, when he was finally converted at the age of 37, had already been an Anglican minister for some time. It's remarkable, isn't it? Even more remarkable is, before he was converted, he had never written a single hymn. And after that, he wrote, I think it was 8,989 or something like that. Remarkable. Talk about diligence. Uh, he, you know, he met Jesus and his life was never the same again. It's remarkable to think, isn't it, that he had been an Anglican minister uh, to the age of 37 and never realised that he wasn't a Christian. Uh, His brother John was the same. John John Wesley went to America uh, as a missionary to serve in the new colony there. Uh, It was an absolute catastrophe. He got got kind of caught up with some woman. Uh, It it ended in tears. He basically ended up being kicked out, uh, I think, of the colony where he was serving. Uh, He came back. Uh, he still wasn't a Christian. It wasn't until 1748 uh, that he was actually finally converted. He was on one of his trips. Uh, he was in danger at sea. The ship was uh, was in danger in a storm, uh, and there were some other real Christians on the on the ship. Uh, and he looked at their peace and tranquility uh, in the storm. He was petrified, uh, and he looked at these Moravians, they were called, and their peace and tranquility. And he thought, "Man, something's not right uh, in my relationship with God." Uh, George Whitfield, another great evangelist from the same era, uh, at Oxford, during his time at Oxford, was part of what was called the Holy Club. Uh, it was a group of Christians, or a group of people, I should say, uh, who were committed to really giving God everything. Uh, and so Whitfield would, in the evenings and, and during the day, he would go and help the poor. He'd visit prisons. It was extraordinary, the, uh, the amount of effort that... Those guys put in to, to serving God in that holy club. But he wasn't a Christian. He didn't get the gospel. It wasn't until later, actually, that uh, he was finally converted. 
It's extraordinary, isn't it, uh, to think of these people who are in ministry uh, and yet have no idea that they, their hearts are far from God. It's a terrifying thought, I think. So too these religious leaders in Jesus' day looked at their, at, uh, their hand-washing practices uh, and they thought to themselves, wow, we really love God. But actually the very thing which they thought spoke to their love for God actually spoke to their love of themselves. And in fact, the one person that they needed to know was standing right in front of them and speaking to them And they were more concerned about whether his disciples had washed their hands than whether they knew him and were following him. Their hypocrisy and our hypocrisy can be masked by our apparent diligence over our man-made rules. They thought that they knew God, but they were also, uh, but they were so far away from God. So the Pharisees then are worked up about this, the dirty hands of Jesus' disciples. Jesus shows them they've missed the point. Uh, And in the last section, he really drives that home. He shows that the heart of the problem is not dirty hands, but the heart itself. Jesus calls the crowd over and says to them in verse 14, Listen to me, uh, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. Uh, The disciples don't get it, which is probably just as well for us, because we might not get it either. And so they ask Jesus what he means, and Jesus explains... He says, are you so dull? Yes, yes they are. Uh, Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into the heart but into the stomach uh, and then out of the body. Jesus says what you eat doesn't change the kind of person that you are. That seems obvious, I suppose, in some ways. Uh, What you eat just goes into your stomach and comes out the other end. Uh, That's why Mark explains that in saying this stuff, Jesus declared all foods clean. The Old Testament practices that that God had required in avoiding certain kinds of foods, uh, they they, they don't matter anymore because it was never about changing who people were. It wasn't about changing their hearts. It was about pointing them to the need for Jesus. And now that Jesus has come, now that Jesus has died and risen again, we don't need those rituals to show us the the problem of sin. We know how, how much of a problem sin is. Jesus had to die for it. Uh, And only a powerful resurrection from the dead could rescue us from it. We don't need uh, food to to tell us that anymore. Jesus says the problem is not our stomachs and our problem can't be fixed by water or by eating the right food. The problem is our hearts. Verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. You don't have to spend much time looking inside your own heart, I don't think, to realise how true that is. You find yourself thinking things instinctively without even intending to do it. So you find yourself becoming angry instinctively. Uh, Someone says something, you don't like it. Your your mind becomes full of abusive and malicious thoughts. Where do they come from? No one's giving you a script of what to think or to say. Where do they come from? They come from inside our own hearts, don't they? And sometimes they come out in an ungodly tirade. 
Uh, and sometimes they don't. But actually, even if they don't come out, they still show us what kind of people that we are, don't they? Inside, you're still seething with rage, whether or not you say it. Or maybe there's something that you really want. Uh, you know, you've had your eye on it for a while and you begin to think to yourself, how is it that I can get that? How can I save money so that I can get it? And before you realise it, your kind of legitimate means for saving that money and scrimping it together turn into slightly illegitimate means. Maybe if I just scrimp and save by not paying for that thing that I really ought to pay for. Maybe if I stop paying for Netflix, Netflix and I just download stuff straight from the web, maybe, maybe that I can get it quicker. Instinctively, we come up with ideas that aren't right, ideas that trample on the livelihoods of other people. Or maybe you find yourself being attracted to people or daydreaming about people who aren't your husband or your wife. You didn't plan it, it just seems to happen. Jesus says those things are the overflow of our sinful hearts. It's bedded down deep into us. They are within you. C.S. Lewis, I think, puts it wonderfully, honestly and eloquently. He says, for the first time I examined myself with a seriously practical purpose. What did he find? There I found what appalled me. A zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. For some people in Jesus' day, that idea was revolutionary. But for people who understood the Old Testament rightly, it wasn't new news. Listen to these words from the Old Testament King David. You desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. David uses the language of the Old Testament cleansing rituals but applies it to his heart. He knew that it wasn't about his body. It wasn't about hyssop uh, and it wasn't about water and it wasn't about food. He knew that it was about his heart. And so he cries out to God, God, you've got to do something for me. There's no hand wash that can make you a new person. You know, you can't go to the chemist uh, and buy a new kind of hand wash that changes the kind of person that you are. There's no scrubbing brush that you can buy that can take away the evil of your own heart. And there's no diet that you can go on that will change your deepest desires. Some people are so desperate to uh, to change themselves and so aware of the problem that actually they do try and change themselves through physical means. They punish themselves. They might hit themselves. But it doesn't work. None of those things can undo who we are and none of those things can make us into better people. But the good news is that Jesus can. Jesus has come to bring forgiveness for our sins, for what lies deep in our hearts, and he's come to clean us up. He's come to burn away all that rubbish that lives in our hearts. The writer of Hebrews says, The blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. They're clean on the outside. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? 
Jesus does what clean food and clean water can't do. Because Jesus has died in our place, if we trust him, if we put our faith in him, if we rest in him, we're forgiven. Despite all the stuff that lives in our hearts. Despite all the stuff that still lives in our hearts. We're forgiven even though our minds are still full of evil thoughts and evil desires. God doesn't just forgive what's in the past. He doesn't just forgive us for our evil actions that we've already committed. He forgives us for what still overflows out of us in our deepest desires and our darkest thoughts. I think that's a tremendous encouragement, isn't it? You know, it's, it's, it's nice to know that our sins from the past are forgiven, but, but it's, if that's all, it's a little consolation when those things well up within our own hearts. I was talking to a friend recently, uh, a Christian friend who struggles with same-sex attraction. Uh, and the problem for him is that every time he feels sexually attracted to somebody of the same sex, he feels utterly condemned. How does a person like that go on? Well, he needs to know that he's forgiven by God once and for all in Christ. And he needs to know that those feelings and those desires don't jeopardise his standing in Christ. Who is he? He is a man in Christ, holy and set apart for God. Extraordinary, isn't it? It's an extraordinary truth. His feelings don't jeopardise it. Yes, he needs to resist them. Yes, he needs to not give in. As we all do. We all have lots of wrong desires that we need to not give in to. But those desires don't materially affect our standing in Christ. Who are we? We're people holy and righteous in Christ. No matter what the filth that's welling up in your heart, if you know Jesus, if you're open and honest with God about who you are, you're a man or woman in Christ. If you say to God, God, this is who I am, this is how mucked up I am, you're the only one who can put this right, you're the only one who can forgive me, you're the only one who can save me. If we're people like that, then in Christ we are promised all the treasures of God's grace. We're God's children, holy and set apart for God. And not only are we forgiven in Christ, but God is also changing us through Jesus. The more that we get to know Jesus, the more his life is at work in our life, the more his desires shape our desires, the more his loves shape our loves, the more his obedience becomes our obedience. We're not just forgiven, but we're people being slowly changed. Sometimes we feel it's too slow. But God is doing it. I'm not what I should be, but I'm not what I was. By the grace of God, I am what I am. A sinner saved in Jesus Christ. When we've caught a glimpse of the darkness of our own hearts, I think it's only too obvious how profoundly silly it is to think that washing our hands or lighting a candle or eating the right food could make God happy with us. It's not about that. It's about who we are and who we need to be. 
What we need is the forgiveness and the cleansing that comes through Jesus Christ. What we need is nothing less than death and resurrection. We need to share in the death of Jesus by faith and to share by faith in his resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we want to be really honest with you about who we are uh, and what lies deep within us. Uh, The malice, Lord, the greed, the anger, the frustration, the bitterness, the envy, the jealousy, the contempt, the arrogance, the self-centeredness, the lewdness, the immorality. Like C.S. Lewis, Lord, we know we're a zoo of lusts and a harem of fondled hatreds. And Lord, the most disturbing thing is is that there's probably more things that live in us than we even realise. So deep is our hypocrisy. So ingrained is our sinfulness. But Lord, we also want to thank you that that's not the end of the story uh, and that there is good news in Jesus Christ who is perfect, who is without those desires, without that sinfulness, and who came and who took on all our sins, piled high on himself and nailed them to a cross so that now those of us who are in him are perfect and holy and righteous in your eyes. Lord, we pray that we would all embrace that and know that truth and take it for ourselves that all of us would belong to Jesus, that all of us would be right in him, even though we're not right. Lord, we pray too that you would help us to know the victory over those things. Lord, some of us can look back and see the kind of person that we were and we're not that anymore and we rejoice in that. We rejoice that your powerful Holy Spirit has changed us, has made us more like Jesus. But Lord, there's still so much more to go. Do a mighty work. Take away our hatred. Take away our bitterness. Take away our immorality. And reshape us into the image of your glorious and majestic son, Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.